0: So hey guys, welcome to the 8th episode of 4 Degrees of Madness. My name is Lan. And my name is Keith. And we're here with uh, Dr. Rudy Lorber, who is a neuropsychologist, a clinical psychologist, and he's also board certified in school and behavioral psychology. He's also uh, a certified threat manager. So welcome to the uh, podcast.
1: Nice to be here.
0: Yeah, definitely uh, great to have you on. And uh, I know one of the areas that... Uh, you've studied quite a bit on as neuropsychology. So for those of us that are not familiar with it, can you give us a little overview on, on that and what exactly it is?
1: Well, neuropsychology in a general sense is the study of brain behavior relationships. Mm-hmm. And so in clinical neuropsychology, we do very in-depth evaluations that look at all aspects of an individual's functioning. Right. And purpose for that is really to leave no stone unturned when trying to understand some of the challenges that individuals may have, mm-hmm. as well as finding their strengths, because we're always building upon strengths to overcome areas of challenge. And so comprehensive neuropsychological testing with other areas like cognitive and academic and social-emotional assessment give us a very in-depth picture of individuals that we can then use to help set up programs and school programs and uh, therapeutic programs for individuals. I do diagnose mental health diagnoses, and this type of data also helps create those diagnoses. And one thing that we know is that a diagnosis alone doesn't explain who an individual is. And with the purpose of this testing is to more define who the person is and what their skill set is.
0: Now, uh, I also saw that uh, you have some expertise in uh, autism spectrum disorders, is that uh, that right?
1: Yes, uh, where I have my practice is uh, basically focuses in autism Mm -hmm. and so I am able to make the diagnosis of autism along with other diagnoses and sometimes concurrent diagnoses um, some folks with autism may have anxiety or unhappiness, um, and then look at helping to either set up behavioral programs and social programs, or sometimes refer to what's called ABA or Applied Behavior Analysis Programs to do more uh, direct one-to-one behavioral intervention with individuals.
0: What does Applied behavioral Analysis Programs look like?
1: the aba model is a very highly structured behavioral approach which breaks down um, skills into very small units and teaches them very specifically Um, it can be used with individuals on the autism spectrum who are higher functioning sometimes uh, individuals who have greater challenges Uh, aba can be used to um, established uh, very basic skills like toileting, uh, enhanced language skills, as well as enhance social functioning, uh, and daily living skills. Autism spectrum disorder is, is often an area that you know we focus on to help younger individuals develop greater skill sets to be more independent. And so then that's something that I enjoy doing is helping increase the independence of individuals. And depending, you know, where on the spectrum they may be, uh, very often one of the uh, things that we see in autism is hyper-focus in certain areas, whether that be, you know, about the weather or about, you know, the solar system or about Mm -hmm. whatever it may be. I always find it very interesting and When individuals themselves, you know, really delve into an area, I've found at times I've learned things from folks, high school students, and sometimes, you know, they have very specific focus that then guides their vocational interests. Mm So seen folks who have had interest in planes and aviation, um, study aviation, I've seen folks who have interest in the weather go on to study meteorology
0: so it sounds like it can be some sort of advantage right allowing the person to learn a lot about a specific topic and focus highly on it so i'm curious on maybe some of the challenges uh, with those people with asd
1: well uh, you know of course one of the hallmarks of autism spectrum disorder Mm -hmm. uh, typically are social difficulties in uh, working environments It's important that others, colleagues, understand the individual who has autism. Um, Sometimes things like um, humor or nuance may be difficult. Um, You know, some individuals, and again, every individual with autism is very different. And that's where the complex testing comes in. It takes a little coaching sometimes to help everyone Uh, get along so that the real strengths that an individual has can occur uh, in a very positive and supporting environment.
0: So on the topic of, you mentioned uh, work environment, right, Um, for the individual. So, you know, I was told about this analogy, the coffee cup analogy. I don't know if you've heard about it, but basically, let's say you have a coffee cup, correct? And then uh, there's certain factors, for example, genetics, right? Uh, Okay, you might have a certain genetic predisposition towards you know being on the spectrum but um you know it might not be as obvious because there aren't as many factors because to the point where the cup overflows is where it'd be more obvious so maybe for some people it's like you know partially full they have the pre-existing factors so can you touch on that a bit like you know environmental factors versus okay i'm placed in a work environment where it might kind of assist in make you less overflow of the coffee cup does that make sense
1: oh it sure does it's not a typical analogy that i use but it does okay. make a lot of sense and again i think that's where the the real benefit of good comprehensive assessment comes into play because mm-hmm. there, are, there are individuals who don't meet all the factors of an a full autism diagnosis but when you evaluate Um, cognitively based social skills. When you evaluate um, issues of empathy and reading facial expressions, you might pick up a few aspects that are there, but are very important too, because you don't want an individual to be misunderstood. An individual may have uh, overt social difficulties. Well, with comprehensive testing, it could be the case that a person is lacking those cognitively-based social skills, and those can be taught through some very good research-based programs. Then again, there may be folks who have cognitively-based social skills, but don't use them. <laughs> and, and so <laughs> we're, what, we're, what we're doing is more using positive behavioral programs, helping folks to use more of the skills that they have we're also evaluating the strengths that someone has. And sometimes those strengths may be different than the environment would like to see, but yet they're usable strengths that we can build upon. And so that's what makes, I always look at every individual I work with as a puzzle that needs to be figured out. And that's what I really enjoy about um, doing comprehensive assessments.
0: You mentioned the example of the student is strong in a specific subject, right? And you're taking advantage of that. Now, what if um, the strength is like, let's say it's not related to school. They're super interested in elevators. How do you take advantage of that where it's maybe they're not into school at all and then they're just super focused on a non-related item?
1: Well, you know, if we think about elevators, there's Mm -hmm. mechanics involved and and so on. And what we have to do is help an individual get through, you know, 12th grade, get through high school, still feeling good about academics, um, still supporting. Sometimes we have to support those interests outside of school Mm -hmm. so that we get on to higher education, then they can focus on those mechanical abilities those interests and find higher education models that um, will support and enhance those skills
0: one thing that kind of comes to mind is the person that uh, you're diagnosing right if you tell them that they have asd what kind of impacts do you think that would have like versus you know not telling the kid that they have the fact that they know it's like, okay, I've been diagnosed with ASD versus, I mean, so like they would know the DSM, right? So how, how does that impact?
1: Well, you know, when I when I do my evaluations, if, um, if they're younger individuals, I kind of do two feedback sessions. Mm-hmm. I do parents um, because they're going to be their child's advocate to move forward. And I do one with the child or adolescent. And very often when you sort of talk about this, they understand what you're talking about because they've been living it, they've been experiencing it, that it's been part of their life. Um, You know, sometimes when I evaluate uh, individuals or mostly younger folks who have very severe challenges, they may not be cognitively able to understand all the nuance of, of that. But certainly with h- more higher functioning folks and very high functioning folks, it's, it usually doesn't come to them as a surprise.
0: Hmm, um, interesting.
1: It's, and again, what I do in my feedbacks is not say, you have autism. What mm-hmm. I say is, here are all the things I evaluated about you. And I always start with strengths. Here's all the things that you're really good at. Here's all the things that you've told me about that your interests are. Here are some of the things that seem to be more difficult for you. And then say, this may encompass what we think of an autism spectrum disorder. And I think when you approach it that way, it isn't a surprise for, especially for older, uh, for adolescents and so on, for older kids and adolescents and young adults. Mm
0: -hmm. I think
1: it's not a surprise. it, it just confirms kind of what they already know or suspected. And I think when with younger, much younger folks um, for parents, it kind of confirms what they already expect. So some parents come in for a confirmation, which may or may not happen. Right. Some with um, previous evaluations where they say, I don't get this. Can you help me understand my child? And some come in and say, I don't understand, help me understand. And I am really happy to do any of those things for them.
0: When parents do come in to ask for help in understanding, um, I noticed on your bio that there was a term called parent training. You did mention about the parent advocacy for helping children move forward. How would you describe what parent training looks like and how it has been effective for young people who are diagnosed?
1: Well, um, part of what I do in my practice is what's called a parent-mediated social learning intervention or popular parent training. And um, one of the pioneers in this field were the folks at the Oregon Social Learning Center in Eugene, Oregon. And that's where I did some of my studying as well. And this is a very empirically based uh, program. And the idea of this is you teach parents how to be good behavioral interventionists for their kids. There's certainly a very important place for individual psychotherapy, and that's a very important place for many types of emotional issues. But you know, therapy is 50 minutes a week, and we often talk about parents are with their kids 5,000 minutes a week. So things that parents can do, and they're always gonna be good uh, advocates for their children. So this is a model that teaches behavioral monitoring skills. That is, you have to be able to see the behaviors you wanna change, positive intervention techniques for enhancing behaviors, and then non-physical, non-hassle forms of consequences to help reduce some behaviors that may be less functional. And so this model is about a six to eight week model. And sometimes after a period of time, they give me a call and we do what we call a booster shot session where they come back in, oh, a new thing popped up, how do I do this? And we talk about, here's what we've done before. Here's yeah. how you can buy the techniques that you've learned. And in the research, families have been followed five to seven years after and um, are still maintaining, you know, a lot of these behavioral principles all the way up until when their kids move out of the house. So, uh, you know, you want to use the car this week because you did X, Y, and Z. Here are the car keys. Uh, Or uh, not quite because, you know, things didn't go well this week. So parents learn how to use positive techniques and consequences in a more systematic fashion. Before coming back to the Northwest, I was in another part of the country that was incredibly wealthy, uh, very wealthy families. Mm-hmm. And a family come in and say, um, you know, I caught my adolescent using drugs and I provided these consequences and they don't seem to be working very well. And uh-huh. I said, what were the consequences that you provided? And they said, well, um, my adolescent had a credit card that they could use for whatever they wanted. And I put them on an allowance. And I said, well, what was that allowance? And they said, well, $1,500 a month. I said, okay. <laughs> and, and, and then they said, well, they were able to drive whatever vehicle they wanted to, um, to school. And, and we stopped that, and we said, well, you can only take the SUV to school. And I said, well, what's your SUV that they're driving? <laughs> oh, Turbo Porsche Carrera. <laughs> um, so I had to do a little bit of let's get back to reality uh, of things.
0: You mentioned behavioral principles a couple of times. Could I ask you for details on what you mean by the Principle.
1: Well, you know, we, we know from a lot of research that um, positive reinforcement is something that we know is, is very important to everyone. You know, sometimes people say, well, isn't that bribery if you're paying someone to do something? And they always say, look up the definition. Bribery is paying someone for something they shouldn't be doing. Um, positive reinforcement is going to work and getting paid. I always say, you know, how many people would go to work and do the job they do if they weren't getting paid for it? Probably some people might, but getting a paycheck is positive reinforcement, and we bring that down to a level that um, younger individuals can understand. Um, And as we talked about, you know, there are consequences in life. Um, We don't want individuals to get in trouble with you know the legal system or things like that those are very uh intense uh consequences so before we ever talk about a consequence we always talk about what is it you want to see what are the things you'd like your child your student to be able to do or do let's get that going and then we'll work on um, what isn't going so well and sometimes what isn't going so well just goes away on its own when you put in place a replacement behavior, an incompatible positive behavior. So if a student, uh, for example, in a classroom yells out a lot, if you reward raising your hand and waiting to be called upon, then yelling out stops on its own.